Today's reading is Psalm 103 and it can be found on page 938 of the Church Bibles. I'll just give you a moment to find that and it will also be on the screen. Psalm 103 of David. Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you are mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. And I meant to say, and um, I'll say now, um, Narelle and I have moved in. We live in Aldgate now, for Pindari Place, um, and we, uh, we consider our house a fairly open house. So if you want to pop in, you just pop right in. You know, that's fine. And uh, we, we, we really uh, would love to, you to visit. Uh, come on over. Uh, don't feel like you need an invitation. Although hopefully we'll extend an invitation. But, you know, we're that sort of house where you can just put a pop in. So that would be great. Um, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped. So helped prepare the place, uh, gardening, fencing, etc., cleaning, and um, th- those who supplied meals and all that sort of stuff. So we're feeling the love. Thank you very much. Uh, let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us to get clear about grace, grace alone, and we thank you for the privilege now of sitting under your word. Uh, Please help us to love you with our minds so that we would know you better and where we stand in relation with you and we would understand what grace means in our lives. And if we've got crinkles in our understanding, please straighten them out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, the Christmas season is upon us. You'd better watch out, hadn't you? Because Santa Claus is coming to town, which means that it's the season of grace. No, it isn't. It's the season of confusion about grace. Grace. What's grace? Grace is the gift that is given just for the sake of it. 
It's what God gives us in Jesus. We didn't deserve God to send his son, but he did out of love. Meaning that at the time when we remember Jesus coming to us, it should be a time when we're very clear on grace. But actually, the way we celebrate Christmas confuses grace. Think for a moment. Think. Present giving, right? Now, it's the season for thinking about presents and buying presents. Some presents, of course, we will buy just for the sake of it, out of love. But there'll be other presents that we'll buy where we'll try and kind of mentally estimate how much we think someone else might spend on us and we'll buy them a present roughly to the same monetary value and we'll do this little equation in our head so that gift-giving isn't really gift-giving, it's more an exchange. It's a funny little ritual that goes on. Then, of course, there'll be some gifts that we will buy for some people according to what we think they deserve. You know, they've been a good friend this year, they get a good present. Bad friend, distant friend, not so good present. Okay, what this means is that at the time of grace and gift-giving, actually we get confused about what grace is because we're conditioned to give according to what we think people deserve. And when we get a gift, we peg it with what we think we deserve. So Christmas is meant to be about grace, but actually there's confusion. Think of the Christmas songs of worship that in our culture we sing to the God of gift-giving. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. We sing of Santa in God-like terms, all-seeing, all-knowing, omniscient. This confuses our thinking about God, doesn't it? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Implication, you'd better be good for goodness sake, all right? (laughs) Um, We can become confused, almost as if our standing with God... um, depends entirely upon whether we've been good enough and on what we do. Today we come to the third Reformation slogan, Grace Alone. Grace Alone was the third catch Christ slogan that the Reformers used to clarify the essence of the gospel. The gospel that if you change, you change. If you change these slogans, you change the gospel. So we've heard so far, salvation is found in Christ alone. Received through faith alone, today, by God's grace alone. In 16th century Europe, the rediscovered gospel of grace took off like wildfire. And the Reformation slogan of grace alone is still championed today. Why? Because it preserves two things. Number one, Christian fellowship. This may not have occurred to you, but grace alone preserves this. Grace alone is a great leveller. It reminds us none of us are justified before God because of what we have done, before, done for God, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. And so it levels the decks. It establishes an equal basis for fellowship because no one is more deserving, you see. It cuts across our performance mindsets of pegging ourselves as more worthy than lesser people because of what we do. It cuts through any pretension any of us might have about being more acceptable to God because of what we've done. That is legalism. Legalism kills fellowship. Grace, grace alone, protects it because it levels us and exalts Christ, who is the basis for our unity. Okay. Secondly, grace alone preserves God's glory because it places God as the ultimate saviour 
from beginning to end, from his decision to save us, sending his son, the work of his spirit to regenerate our hearts, open us up to him, to his spirit's work in keeping us in faith. From beginning to end, it's all of God. Grace alone preserves God's glory because it gives the glory to God for our salvation. And yet, even though this is wonderful and should set our hearts on fire, I reckon a lot of Christians get a bit tired of grace or their hearts grow cold to it. Now, why would that be? I suspect because it doesn't reward us. It takes away any perceived notion of credit we may think is due to us. It even reminds us that our own response of faith doesn't come ultimately from ourselves but from God. Now, that, if you're trying in your relationship with God, that is mildly insulting to our dignity. So we can go cold on grace alone. Well, today, therefore, is the day I want to eliminate any confusion on grace alone. I want to iron out the crinkles, right, so that we accept it deeply. And I want to try and help us recapture in our hearts what's so amazing about grace. Psalm 103 is God's remedy for a mind that's confused about grace and a heart that is cold towards grace. It begins with a command to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, that's not an expression of praise to God because it's not directed to him. Who's being addressed? Himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All right, he's telling himself to praise the Lord and to do it from his heart, from his very soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. And to do this not because he's naturally bursting from within with praise to God, but because he's not. And that's worrying. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, obviously, the reason why he says to forget not all his benefits is precisely because he has a tendency to forget. (laughs) He knows. And praising God is his solution. And so here's the first thing you learn. You don't need to feel praise of God before you do it. In fact, it's good to praise God even when you don't feel praise for God. It's a remedy for your soul. And it works because if you look through the psalm, what begins as a kind of mechanical process in a spiritual discipline, by the end, the praise is coming from within. So, if you are bored of God's grace... Talk to yourself. Say, self, you need to praise the Lord. Now, praise the Lord for what? Well, for all the ways God has shown his grace to you. In verse 3 and five, three to 5, David lists all of God's benefits to him. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Well, David counts them. He lists them out. He forgives all your sins. Of course, now for David, this is only possible because of Jesus' future death on the cross once for all, but it's still applied to him. Who heals all your diseases. And if you're sitting here today well, guess what? God's healed all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, the pit being the place of punishment for sin, and who instead crowns you with love and compassion. That's what God does. And who on top of that satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle's. When you stop and you list out the ways that God has shown us his kindnesses and grace, something happens to a cold heart. 
your heart begins to warm, your heart begins to thaw if you practice the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving. Um, And so praise the Lord for how he has been to you. Now, when you've exhausted that list, what do you do? You keep going. You praise the Lord for how he is towards his people. Because when you reflect on what God's done for his people, that will lead you to reflect on his character. And God's character remains the same for us. Verse 6 and 7, David reminds himself, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. That's what he's done. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. That's what God's done. In other words, what he does is he saves And David can look back to the Exodus when the Lord rescued the Israelites out from slavery under Pharaoh and he praises God for that. We can look to the cross where God has rescued us from hell. What God does is save. That is his way. He's made it known to his people. And so if you're dry, tell yourself, self, you need to praise God for what he has done. And very soon you'll find yourself doing what David does which is to praise God for his character, for who he is, because actions reveal character. Who is the Lord? Verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is his character. Do you remember back to the Exodus? Do you remember when God saved his people and he brought them to Sinai? But because Moses was taking too long up the mountain... You know, Aaron said, give me your gold, and the people gave him the gold, and he put it in the fire, and out popped a golden calf, and he said, he's your God who's brought you up out of Egypt, and they worshipped. It was a disaster. The Lord, in dialogue with Moses up on the mountain, becomes angry, understandably. So angry, in fact, that he tells Moses he's going to wipe the lot of them out, and Moses begs God to relent. And whereas any of us would have remained angry, grace upon grace, God relents, Exodus 32. And then God takes Moses and he hides him in a cleft of a rock and he passes by him. And the Lord covers Moses with his hand until only his back is in view so that Moses will not die by gazing on the Lord. But as he passes by, God proclaims to Moses his name, his character, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And they are the words that David recalls here. And in view of the pardon that he has just shown the Israelites, that is exactly who the Lord is. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love. And it's this gracious mercy of God towards his people, which David now sees is God's greatest benefit to him. What do you think is God's greatest benefit to you? Uh, Is it your family? Is that what you give most thanks to God for? Is it your health? Um, Is it your job? I don't know. Is it your friends? Well, David doesn't want to forget any of God's benefits, and that's why he lists them out. But whilst David is aware of the many, many ways that God has benefited him, the one benefit that David does not and will not let himself forget, the central benefit which has been born out in David's life and Israel's own life, the supreme benefit which dominates his appreciation of God and fills the horizon of his life, the most wonderful benefit to him is the Lord God himself. That the Lord is 
a God of unfathomable and pardoning grace to him. He just doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And it's wonderful. (laughs) But we search for a reason, you know. There must be something about us to explain this love. That's where we naturally go, isn't it? But the staggering thing about God's grace is it's got nothing to do with any inherent redeemable quality within us. He just loves us. And not a little bit, a lot. And not reluctantly with a kind of basil, faulty, resigned psych, (laughs) you know, if I must, but with deep compassion. How he treats us in the end, it's not about us, it's about him. If you think otherwise, grace would cease to be grace. The reformers saw this. They knew at stake was something greater than our assurance, greater even than our salvation or fellowship. Tamper with grace, salvation becomes deserved in our mind and what happens? God is robbed of his glory. It's that that the phrase grace alone protects. That slogan emerges from the other two. There's a logic. Follow the thinking. Christ alone says we're saved entirely through Christ, not through anyone else, the Pope, priest, saint, because Christ has done everything we need. His death covers all our sins. He he serves as our great high priest in heaven. He intercedes for us directly before God. And we ask, well, if if Christ is so complete a saviour, do we need to do anything? And the answer is absolutely You've got to believe the news. You've got to respond in faith. It's faith alone that saves because our salvation is Christ's work, not ours. Okay, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But you say, hang on, but faith is something we do, isn't it? That's our personal response that we all need to make. God requires it of us. And in fact, it pleases him. It's a something we do which pleases him. So if faith is something we do that's necessary for salvation, does faith then become a work that contributes to salvation? And to this, the reformers said, no. We are saved by grace alone, by which they meant, even though it's our decision to trust in Christ, that faith that we have comes to us from God. We say, but hang on, hang on. Doesn't that go against our free will? We have free will, don't we? Well, yes, in that we do choose God, and we certainly do. We have to respond personally. But what do you mean by free will? You see, are our hearts and minds truly free? Would we freely decide to choose God without any help from him? Well, this takes us to the very heart of the question about ourselves. By ourselves, are we spiritually alive or are we spiritually dead? Are we, in essence, good people capable of evil or evil people capable of good? In our minds and hearts, are we free to respond to God or are we naturally enslaved to turn away from him? In the end, are we deserving of heaven or are we deserving of hell? Keep a finger in Psalm 103 and come with me to Ephesians 2. Because grace gets confused if we don't know who we are. So lest we forget what we're like, I want you to 
please look up your Bibles here. Um, it's really important you see this. This is one of those aha moments that you are going to have. You need your Bible open. Okay. Lest we forget what we're like, in verses 1 to 3, God speaking through his apostle, he lays out for us our natural spiritual condition without God. Verse 1. As for you, you were alive? No, dead in your transgressions and sins. We are not naturally spiritually alive. We are spiritually dead. Well, are we good or are we evil? Verse 2. You followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We followed Satan. We may be capable of doing good, but our fundamental nature is evil. Are our minds free or are they enslaved? Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at that time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. This is the language of slavery. Given the choice which we have, we don't naturally choose God because our minds are enslaved to the flesh. Are we deserving of heaven or of hell? Verse 4, we were by nature objects of wrath. Dead, evil, enslaved, objects of wrath. We are not capable of faith by ourselves. Our whole beings, in other words, are hardwired against God rather than towards him. So, I'm talking to people who have faith. Where does faith come from? Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God. And here is God's grace. Unpacked in verses 4 to 7, with verse 8 explaining the link between grace and faith. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not from yourselves, that faith is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our faith isn't a work we boast in, because we're incapable of it by ourselves. You see, left, left to our own devices, our hearts would not warm to God. Verse 4, it was when we were dead in transgressions that he made us alive with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Which means that if we have faith, we have it only because God has given it to us as an undeserved gift. Because it's only... God's spirit who is at work in us, turning our hard hearts towards him, thawing our hearts, cracking them open, that we accept Christ in faith. Which means that from beginning to end, we are saved by God's grace alone. From beginning, God chooses us to, to, chooses to save us before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1. He takes the initiative, he sends Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. He regenerates our hard hearts and softens our hearts to him by his spirit. He sends someone to us with the news of Christ and then God's spirit takes that news and convicts us of our sin, enables us to believe the good news and receive Christ and turn to him. And then he sustains us in faith and he keeps us persevering to the end. From beginning to the end, it's all of God. We are saved by God's grace alone. Yes, we have a part to play, but that part comes from God, you see. And we try and work out, well, well, why did God choose us and not other people? Because other people don't believe. You know, did God like us more because of what we've done in our lives? Or does he favour the family we come from? Or does he look forward in time 
and kind of see who's going to be more fruitful members of his team and then choose them. No. Well, why choose us? If it's not about us, then verse 4. It's because of his great love for us. That's it. It's because God in his nature is just rich in mercy. It's because God. From Psalm 103, the Lord abounds in grace-saturated love. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, he removes our transgressions from us as far as east is from the west. Now, when you're watching the sun set in the west, you can't see it rising in the east, can you? (laughs) It's out of sight. As far as east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. He can't see them, you see. Now, why is that? It's because he looks at us through Christ and his righteousness. So that to us, he says of our sins, I want you to know that I will never hold them against you because I've dealt with them. I've put them out of mind. They're out of mind. They are out of sight. They will never come up again. We think, really? Because we still live with them, right? (laughs) We think, hang on, surely we must have to deserve forgiveness. After all, doesn't Psalm 103 verse 17 say, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, with those who keep his covenant, with those who remember to obey him. There you go. Uh Uh-uh, you've got to get the order right. We only remember to obey him and keep his covenant and fear him because God's been at work in us first. He showers grace on us. We grasp in our minds that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. This creates faith in God. The Lord grows in our heart, uh, our understanding of him. He is the God we want to love and to fear and to obey, not to earn forgiveness, but because He first loved us and gave us these things. David knew this for himself. He'd been grappling in his praise with how to express the kind of limitless dimensions of God's gracious love to him, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as east is from the west, as a father has compassion on his children. They all point to the gracious love of God. And you get that David's trying to sense in this world of beginnings and ends, finite values. He's trying to grasp the limitless size of grace. But he can't. You see, this just highlights how amazing it is. It has no limits. In fact, in Ephesians 2, you see this. God layers grace upon grace. This is one of those aha moments, right? I preached on this passage three times before I saw this. Aha. Okay, expect light bulbs to go off at this moment. There are three levels of grace. First, God makes us alive with Christ when we were dead. We think that's big. He could have stopped there. But he doesn't. Next, he raises us up and seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's a position of ultimate security and safety and status, right? You can't get any higher than that. And he could have stopped there. I mean, what could be better than that? He doesn't. He keeps going. Because finally, he raises us up so that in the coming ages, he may show us the incomparable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're wowed by grace now, you've only begun to glimpse how good it is. He's going to blow our minds apart, you see. So that from everlasting to everlasting, from inf- to infinity and beyond, God's love is with those who fear him. So that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. God's amazing grace. 
Once you grasp grace alone, you have a passion for God's glory. You see, by the end of Psalm 103, David's kind of been chipping away at this damn wall of thanklessness, which is there. Chip, chip, chip. Count your blessings. Chip, chip, chip. And remember who God is. Remember what he's done. Remember his character. Okay, and whereas the waters of praise were kind of beginning in a trickle, by the end of the psalm, the damn wall is down. The waters are just flowing out. Now in verse 20, he's aware once again of the cosmic size of the benefit that has become his. He can't contain himself. He calls on all of creation. Uh, to praise the Lord. You, his angels, you, his heavenly host, all his works in all places of dominion, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Is there praise in your heart to God for God's grace? Do you know, in comparison to us, David, who wrote this psalm, he knew little of the spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ Jesus. You know, when David wanted a measure of God's love, the best he could do was to look at where the sun rose and where the sun set. We, of course, can do better, can't we? We can look at the cross. We see just how far and how wide the arms of God were flung to show us how much he loves us and how determined he is not to remain angry. You know, David had all his diseases healed. We have been redeemed from the pit of hell. God's delivered to us his grace, not with an eyedropper, but with a fire hose. He's pouring it out on us, pouring out his loving kindness to us in his son. He just does not treat us as our sins deserve. And we've seen in the cross exactly what our sins do deserve. But Jesus went there so that we don't have to. You grasp grace alone. We'll have humility before God because we know we come to him with no claim on his grace. But we'll have joy because he gives it to us anyway. You grasp grace alone, we'll be very protective of the fellowship that grace wins us. You know, because it so easily can be undermined. You know, churches with kind of unspoken rules about who's in and who's out, who's welcome and who's not. It happened in Antioch in an incident described in Galatians 2, extra Jewish laws were added on to the gospel of grace, creating kind of false tiers of acceptability between people when God's grace had already declared that everyone in Christ were first-class citizens. Even the apostle Peter and Barnabas were led astray without realising it. Paul saw it and he would have none of it. He was fiercely protective of the fellowship that grace creates. The, the fellowship of the church, the gospel of grace, the glory of God was at stake. And so when Paul's, Paul said, when I saw that Peter and Barnabas were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, he challenged Peter to his face, publicly, apostle versus apostle. And then he talks about grace alone, faith alone, sorry. We know that people aren't justified by observing the Lord, the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Because by observing the Lord, no one will be justified. And then he shows us why grace alone matters. I do not set aside the grace of God. Because if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He understood Christ's glory was at stake. And Paul would not stand for God's grace being dishonoured and Christ's sacrifice disregarded. He was protective of it. 
You grasp grace alone and you will be passionate for God's glory. You will be personally humble and you'll be protective of the fellowship that his grace wins us. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for helping to iron out the crinkles that we have in our understandings of grace. We get so confused and we live with sin and everything seems to be conditional in our world. But you are different. So we pray, help the eyes of our hearts to open wider, to more deeply understand and believe that we are saved by grace alone. And help us to see the connections um, and how this transforms us into a great people of God who welcome everyone with faith in Christ. And we do this to your glory, and it's to you that we want to give all honour and glory. Amen.